Lord, we are again grateful to you this morning for your gifts that you have given us in Christ. And now we do pray that you will gift us with eyes to see, with ears to hear, and hearts that comprehend what the Spirit of God says to the Church of God through the Word of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Some of you may recall the famous Burger King slogan. It may still be a slogan that they use. Have it your way. Now, as a child, I was a big proponent of having things my way, including when it came to the fine cuisine of fast food restaurants. <laughs> I can recall one particular instance when as my mother, my sister-in-law, and I were dining at McDonald's in Joplin, Missouri, I was not satisfied with my order. I did not get my Big Mac my way. I desired a Big Mac with ketchup only, but as I bit into my hamburger, I could faintly taste the odious presence of mustard. I know that was all that was needed to taste, that I needed to taste. Again, that was not my way, so I, in the logic of a five-year-old, refused to eat uh, such a contaminated hamburger. Now, of course, I was informed that by such action, I was somehow offending the sensibilities of other people who were at that very moment starving around the world. <laughs> Yet I stuck to my guns and refused my meal as it was not my way. In our profit at all cost culture, we find that many institutions have adopted the Burger King model, including, thankfully, McDonald's. I, when I can eat at McDonald's, which is almost never anymore, will get my burger or my quarter pound of a cheese and ketchup only, large fry and large dark pepper. I get it my way. And we find that businesses political establishments, even churches, have adapted or adopted the have-it-your-way approach. Now, I think for business, that is smart. I think for politicians, it is expedient for them and, well, quite frankly, harmful for society. For churches, for churches, this is just terrible. It is a terrible approach especially in how it has influenced how we worship the Lord. One of the chief attractions for many to conservative Reformed Presbyterianism actually has to do with something of a rejection of the have-it-your-way approach to the worship of God, especially as it relates to the public corporate worship of God. Specifically, as we approach the worship of God, we seek uh, to, as best we can, worship the Lord in the manner which he has revealed in Scripture. We seek to only do those things commanded, as best we can, while at the same time abstaining from those things forbidden. We call this the regulative principle of worship. Today, the order of service, if you go to Heritage today, you're going to find a, a, a bit of a different ordering of service. If you go to other Presbyterian or you go to a Dutch Reformed church, you're going to find some minor differences. But overall, 
you're going to find much the same because we're all striving to order our worship with those elements that reflect the teaching of Scripture. Not our way of worship, but as the Lord has revealed in His Scripture. We seek only to do those things, commanded, abstaining from those things forbidden. By such a fastidious approach to worship, we are guarding our worship. And I would contend that we must so guard our worship, and that for two reasons. We must guard our worship because the threat of corruption and the jealousy of our God. Let us return to our passage from Deuteronomy, where we'll be focusing our sermon today. At chapter 4, verses 15 through 22, for our two reasons. First reason, again, we must guard our worship because of the threat of corruption. I do believe we see this in verses 15 through 19, but before we get to the application of these verses, let's understand the context. Let's do a little exegesis so we know that we're in, heading down the right path in utilizing God's Word. Our current passage, especially verses 15 through 18, serve as something of a commentary to the second commandment. Now, later on, Deuteronomy, Moses will give the second commandment about not making any images. Uh, the first commandment, with no other God before our God. Second commandment, no images. And I do believe this is the focus, is actually the second commandment about making images. God will command through Moses, don't make images. And what we have in these chapter, or this chapter, especially verses 15 through 18, is God or Moses' commentary, the inspired commentary of Moses about that second commandment. Now, I would add that there is likely a reference as well to the first commandment in verse 19 as it deals potentially with the worship of other beings. I'll say more about that in a minute. I say something of a commentary because Moses here provides the rationale for not using images in the worship of God. Catch what I just said. It's not enough just to worship the right God as far as we understand the Ten Commandments. No, no. It's not enough just to worship the right God. One must worship the right God in the right manner. Oh, we're going to worship Yahweh, but what we'll do is we'll get, we'll get some images to represent Yahweh. And God's word says, no, 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 no. Not only do you worship Yahweh alone or Jehovah, you also worship him in his way, and the way you don't worship him is by utilizing images in your worship, which was very common in that period of time. So here we have a commentary, and, and I love how Moses uh, does this. I love his theological reasoning. It's uh, when God revealed himself on Mount Sinai, you saw no image, therefore have no image. Did you catch that in our text? Let's read verses 14, 15 through 18. Therefore watch yourselves, be uh, very careful. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. There's the theological reasoning. It's really simple. When God revealed himself, he used no images. Therefore, beware lest you act corruptly 
by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure. And he goes on. There you have the theological reasoning. It's, a, it's, it's Moses utilizing the historical revelation of God in time and space and then applying that historical revelation to the life of God's covenant people. This is how Moses, the theologian, produces his theology, not by some sort of sophisticated philosophical argument, but by the historical revelation of God in time and space to his people. By pointing to the historical act or the historical event of God and tracing out the appropriate application from it, Moses provides the rationale for not using images in the worship of God. You saw no image. So don't use an image. Now, we could uh, properly reason a bit more upon this and point out that such images would have a limiting effect upon our understanding of God. That is, once you encapsulate the person of God in a certain form or image, that form itself, not being able to adequately represent the person of God, will limit the worshiper's understanding and appreciation of the object of his worship. The image would thus actually serve to undermine the true worship of God rather than enhance it. See, once you make a picture or a statue and you say, there, O Israel, there, O church, is your God, you immediately limit God. For he far transcends any image we could ever make of him. Uh, likewise, we would be right to state that God has actually already made or supplied an image of himself. Now, look around for a minute. Look to your left, look to your right. If you feel comfortable, look behind. There you see the image of God. Man. God made man in his image, in his likeness. Yet, think about this. Rather than, the, than an object of worship, the proper image of God, man, is actually the highest of his earthly worshipers. We're not the object. We're the ones doing the worship. How does God, how does God have the earth glorify him? Well, one chief way is by his image bearers. Worshiping him throughout his creation. Nevertheless, in Moses' original process of theologizing, he pointed to the redemptive historical event and drew out the proper theological point. We saw no image, and so we use no image. The Israelites thus were to be cautious in regard to their worship as Moses declares to them, beware lest you act corruptly by making an image. Now I do believe that, uh, such, uh, that how such a practice is a corruption is actually hinted at or implied in our text, especially as we compare verses 16 through 19 to the creation account 
of Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 21. Let's just flip over to Genesis chapter 1. Pay attention to the order. I'm going to include verse 19. What's the order? The order in Genesis or Deuteronomy chapter 4, notice the order. find it again, the likeness of any male or female, but notice especially verse 17, the, like, or the likeness of any male or female, the likeness of animal that's on the, on the earth, the likeness of the, any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, and the likeness of any fish that is on the water under the earth, and then verse 19 speaks about the stars, the moons, the, the, the heavenly things. But notice when Moses wrote the order of creation, beginning with verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. The proper order of creation begins with what? The moon, the sun, the stars. And then then what comes next? We'll go down to verse 20. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse. So then you have birds and, and fish. And then verse 24, what's the next item? And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth. So now we have these beasts of the earth. And then what's the last thing? Man. Well, what's the order that we find back in Deuteronomy? It's almost completely reversed. The only problem is the sweet, the creeping things. But everything else is reversed. Instead of it beginning with heavenly things, the heavenly lights, begins with the last thing and actually reverses the order. Here Moses seems to be indicating that such worship is antithetical to how creation operates. So our first hint points to the use of such images in the worship of God as a reversal of how things ought to be as revealed in creation. Now that's not the only time we see this. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Here we're going to focus on 26 and 27. Again, it's all about the order. Remember the order. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. There's the old creeping things again. That's only part of this that is a little bit out of order, but everything else, again, notice it's reversed. But here we have even greater insight in how this uh, making of images is a corruption. Because notice what Moses says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. He said, Let us make man in our image so that they might have dominion. Over the creational order. But by reversing that, we also must realize what Moses is saying. They're reversing it, but also they're they're not exercising dominion over the creational order. They're worshiping the creational order. 
Rather than ruling over it, they're worshiping the things of creation. Mankind was created in the image and likeness of God in order to rule over the animal kingdom, not to, in effect, serve or to bow down to the animal kingdom by the, his employment of their images in worship. This is corruption. Yay. This is perversion. Man, it's not to be bowing down to, to, to a big uh, mouth, or what do they call them, big mouth bass? Large mouth bass. That's not how that works. No, no, mankind is to be sitting out on a pond and he's to catch the large mouth bass. <laughs> not to worship it. This is perverted. And of course, this is what we're hearing, is it not, from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's as if Moses is echoing the warning. I'm sorry, Paul is echoing the warning that Moses gives in Deuteronomy chapter 4. How, O Israel, how, O church of the living God, can we pervert our worship? It's when we worship what is not to be worshipped rather than worshiping him who rightly owns our worship. Humanity as a whole has demonstrated their corruption by worshiping created things in the place of God. And instead of ruling created things for the sake of God and his glory. Let us remember that the righteous judgment for such perversion. What is that? I, I know Greek Hebrew, but I don't know my Latin. Lex teleonis. Somebody knows it and they're trying to, I wish somebody could just say it because this, in effect, is what we see here. Eye for an eye. If you're going to pervert yourself by your worship, then I'm going to give you over to your perversion. Women will exchange natural desires for unnatural desires. Men will exchange natural, this is a perversion of the created order and it's not to man's good. It's to his debasement. It's to his sorrow. It's to his humiliation. Moses, though, not only warns about the use of the image of created things to worship God, but likewise, not to be drawn to the worship of celestial elements in verse 19. Now, we just expand a bit upon that. Again, this seems to have less to do with the second commandment, as I've already told you as these elements actually become the object of worship themselves. If you go back to the ancient Near East and about this period of time, you will find that certain uh, celestial elements, moon, I think the name of the moon was Sin, that was actually associated with a particular god. There is a merging between the moon or the sun or the stars and particular gods. And in this period of time, they would actually worship these objects as a form of worshiping that God. And Moses thus says, don't do that. Don't practice that. Rather, he reminds them 
that these elements were, and I'm quoting, allotted to all the people under the whole heaven. Now, some folks want to say, well, see, what that means is that the Lord has actually uh, allotted this sort of worship to the pagan nations as an act of judgment. I don't think that's what Moses is meaning here. Again, reflecting on Genesis chapter 1, even the stars and the sun and the moon, they were to serve man. God created these, for one instance, as a way of telling time. In other words, they were to serve the purposes of man. But here again, what do we see? We see corruption. That which served becomes the object of service. The object of worship. This is corruption. The point again being how mankind demonstrates their corruption by perverting the natural order of things. Items created to serve mankind are rather worshipped by mankind. In light of such a threat of corruption, we all the more must seek to worship the Lord rightly. That's the answer, dear friends. That's why the regular principle for me is not just a question on an ordination test or something I, I learned back in seminary. It is, it is, it is that which... Our Father has granted us to defend against that remnant of corruption. Yes, you and I. Please read the Westminster Standards repeatedly because one of the best parts at times is to be reminded, as our standards teach, that all of us here still have a remnant of corruption. And that corruption can even spill out in how we worship our God. So, what better fatherly kindness can He demonstrate to us than by giving us guidance, direction, and how we are to worship Him? Let us not imagine ourselves safe from such polluted, perverted worship. We may think to ourselves, well, we are too enlightened and sophisticated of a people to ever again use the silly items like statues in our, or statues in our worship of God. We're, we're, too, we're, we're the enlightenment times. Who would ever bow down to a, a totem pole again or, or some, some uh, figure of a, of a supposed god or goddess of a shira? Um, I would contend that the sophistication and enlightenment we have enjoyed in much of the quote-unquote civilized world is actually due to the rightful worship of God. Such worship either directly upon true believers, or indirectly even upon unbelievers, has had a leavening, or a, le a leavening effect for the advancement of our society. Christian church, by the rightful worship of God, I would contend that we have been a major force of undermining and destroying so much superstitions that have kept back other societies from advancing in their culture and scientific knowledge. Once that influence is so rejected as to have no effect, that threat of corruption will become a reality 
and will rob man of his wisdom and sound thinking. Or, as Paul stated, such a rejection of the rightful worship of God will leave man foolish and futile in their thinking. I don't even know if I have to say this. Because I think, I really truly am afraid we're seeing it in our day and age already. It will eventually, that futility, that foolishness of thought, will eventually manifest itself in how and what people worship. Even sophisticated idolatry, as manifested in the worship of reason and science, over the rightful use of the worship of God, will only grow more foolish as time does pass and lead to even more debased forms of worship. A debasement that will eventually demonstrate itself in practical everyday life, like our young women, culturally now, not the church's young women, Confusing themselves to the point that they can't even understand what their gender is. There's something wrong with the worship practiced by man. That's foolishness, friends. That's foolishness. That sort of threat alone should drive an unbeliever to his knees to the right worship of God, which can now only occur in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as he himself declared, is the only way to God, only one who has believed in and has been incorporated into Christ can rightly worship God. For any and all who so desire to worship, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him as your Lord and Savior. Center your worship in Him, through Him, as He is our mediator between us and God. And for those of us, sometimes we need to reframe things, don't we? You know, some people will hear about the Presbyterian regulative principle of worship, and they go, oh, this is so cramping. Oh, it limits your freedom. That's foolishness. I'm sorry, that's why I know it's harsh, but it is foolishness. Because he's a good father. He's a loving father. I just seen a, a father exercise discipline of his child. Why do you think he does for us? And, and one way that he does that is he says, Look, child of mine, children of mine, I know your struggle with corruption. I know you still have problems here. So as a good father, isn't that what you good fathers do? Yeah. Especially as your child grows, you give them instruction. Now, now. Hey, there's an electric outlet. Let me, go, let me go play on that electric outlet. Now, every good father here would do what? No, no, no. No, I don't think you'd be like that at all. And eventually a stubbornness. We'll get back to that in a minute. Though. But that's how we need to reframe 
the regulative principle. It's the Father demonstrating His love by revealing to His people, His church, His children, how they ought to rightly worship. Because of the threat of corruption, Israel. But not so that. We must guard our worship because of the jealousy of our God. Now, Moses goes on to remind, and here we're focusing on verses 20 through 24. Moses goes on to remind the people of the Lord's great redemption uh, and the consequence of that redemption. Uh, in verse 20, let's go back there. Let's read 420 again. It's such a beautiful good news for the Israelites. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Moses points to the great redemption of God as the Lord had delivered his people out of that smeltering furnace of Egyptian oppression. And he now, through that great act of redemption, has claimed these people as his own. Oh, he calls them his inheritance. Elsewhere, he calls them his treasured possession. They belong to him. And our God, what a beautiful and glorious God he is. He is jealous. And we're not speaking about a human jealousy like what you and I encounter. No, his is a good and holy jealousy over the affections of his people. He will, as I'll say again, he will not allow for any uh, competition between his people and himself. What goodness the Lord has shown us, his covenant people. Let me remind you of Romans, uh, Paul's teaching in Romans, I think is around chapter 11. When we believe, what happened? We were engrafted into these people. We were made a participant of all the covenant promises their identity has now become our identity. So that when we read of what God did in Egypt and against the Egyptians as he delivered his people, he's not talking about them. We have been engrafted. It's our story now. It's our redemption now. He first delivered us from Egyptian bondage, made a covenant with us by which he did establish us as his people and charged us to be his representative to the nations. Yet, this redemption was just a beginning. It was but a beginning which found its apex in the redemption he accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ was born. He lived. He died. He was resurrected for the sake of His people. His covenant people. Whom the Lord had elected before time itself. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our Savior King. And he did provide for his people. He did protect his people by defeating his and our enemies. Now it's, we're not talking about Egypt and Pharaoh. Now we're talking about sin and death. 
He lived a perfectly righteous life. He died as a sacrifice for our sins. He was raised to life that we too might have life eternal. And he reigns and rules above all for the sake of his church. This is the great redemption that we are a participant in today. Today we have a complete assurance of our reconciliation with the Father because Christ has died for our sins. Sins which separated us from our Father. And he was raised to life so that we too might live and live forever unto the Father. By this complete redemption, we today are God's inheritance, his treasured possession, his adopted sons and daughters. But Church of the living God, as verse 23 informs us, there can be no greater breach of this covenant relationship than to reject him, our God, as the object of our worship and rather substitute something else in his place. We read it in verse 23. Let's read again. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. Every generation of the covenant people of God, then and now, those little ones, you little ones that are sitting beside, this is their call. This is our call. Do not forget the covenant that the Lord has made with us. And notice what he says, which he made with you. Now, how do you forget it? Well, it's by making a carved image, the form of anything the Lord, your God, has forbidden you. Now, we've got to recognize something called redemptive history here now, don't we? I mean, we don't struggle with this. You know, none of us after the service is going to secretly go to a cave and, and you know, present a sacrifice to an idol. That's what they struggled with back then, though. You know that, don't you? Whether overtly or in secret, the people of God, and I'm talking now the church broadly, I mean, read your Old Testament. This was a continual struggle from one generation to the next generation. There was always those unbelievers amongst the church who committed the greatest act of apostasy, demonstrating their unbelief by worshiping man-made images, idols. Oh, we don't have that problem. Well, now wait a minute threat of an idolatrous situation or substitution still exists today. As Paul does warn us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. I don't know what he said, put it to death. As his redeemed people, those who have been born again, no, we will never, ever fall to those things. No, because the Spirit of God is working mightily in us, utilizing these very passages to teach us. When we see that sort of desire creep into our hearts, what are we to do? Put it to death. Don't let it even get a root for a moment. So, oh, I don't have to worry. Yes, you do, believer. 
No, no, you can never fall away permanently. But even as our confession teaches us, we can fall away momentarily. And we can stir the displeasure of God momentarily. You say, well, he'll bring us back. Yes, he will. That's what I'm talking about a minute. That could be a very unpleasant experience. How much wiser to heed the words of the Apostle Paul as the Spirit of God so energizes our hearts, our minds, our wills as he works in us to perfect us. Never reaching that stage of perfection. But yet each and every day recognizing one of the great hymns of the church, I still like it, speaks about a heart that wonders. That's my Missouri. I think I was supposed to say that like wonder. I still can't get it. You know it as well as I know it. Our hearts wander all the time. What's Paul's admonition to us? In light of the great gospel that we have believed, in light of our Christ providing forgiveness for our sins, in light of the Spirit of God energizing and empowering us, we are to put it to death. We start sensing in our own hearts and minds the desire to add to or subtract from the worship of God in an improper way. Well, we need to do these things. No, you don't. Put it to death. Thus, we must take great care to ensure that we are worshiping the Lord and doing so in the manner that he has laid down for us. For as Moses declares here, God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He will brook no rival for the affection of his people. Moses thus declares and so warns the people of his day that as his inheritance, as those through this covenant relationship now belong to the Lord. The Lord is jealous both for his honor and for his people. And when we stray, when they stray, or when we stray, we will stir. Now listen very clearly. The paternal anger of our God. That's what Moses experienced. Did you catch that in our text? This is actually the third time Moses does this. He uses his own situation as an illustration of what not to do. Remember, Moses had done something that was against the father's delight and desire. And he was punished for it by being excluded from the promised land. And so Moses here, he reminds them of that. He says, I'm, I'm not going in, but you're going in. And the implication is, do as I say, not as I've done. <laughs> Don't follow me down this path. Now let's make sure, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we never, ever have to worry about the judicial anger or the judicial punishment of our God. Moses didn't either. Well, you see Moses in the new heavens and the new earth. We better believe you will. Why? Because Christ paid for his sins just as he's paid for your sins. We will never experience the judicial wrath of God against our sins because that has been poured out. 
on the Lord Jesus Christ. Never again the legal or judicial wrath, punishment, anger of God, no way. Oh, but he is a good father, is he not? And in light of his being a good father, when we do that which is wrong, when we do that which is out of sync with his revealed will as revealed in Scripture, we can face his paternal anger, his paternal punishment. If I can just soften it a bit more, because I don't want his fatherly discipline. That's what Moses faced. And Moses is telling the believing uh, church, he's saying, don't do as I've done. Take heed of the Father's loving discipline and rightly worship the Lord your God. Because He is a jealous God, a consuming fire. And, you know, again, I want us to reframe this whole idea of the jealousy of God. That's how much He loves His people. He will brook no rival affections. What you care about in this way, you can, in a very imperfect way, mirror the Father. I am jealous over the love of my wife, as I think she's jealous over. I will, I, I will not share the love of my wife with another man, and you know, she won't share it with a love another another woman. Now there's a good example of even human jealousy. And in a similar way, the Father so loves us. We're his treasured possession. We're his inheritance. He will share us with no other. Because he loves us in Christ. He purchased us, not only by redeeming his church from Egypt, but by ultimately redeeming his church from sin and death, we belong to Him. And there's only one rightful response to such love, to such jealousy of our God. And that is to worship Him. Not just worship Him alone, but worship Him only as He has revealed in His Word. Because of the jealousy of our God over his people, we must rightly worship our God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning or this afternoon for your word. As we have addressed it to the hearts and minds of your people, we pray that they will hear and that they will respond to the love of our God as revealed in Christ Jesus in our great redemption that we together will strive to worship and worship you alone and worship you only as you have so revealed. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let us now uh, sing our closing song, our hymn of...